0: This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this
1: week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today, and a very happy new year to you as we kick off season 15 of Franchise Today with Jonathan Teeson, Chief Development Officer at Home Franchise Concepts, franchisors of Budget Blinds, Concrete Craft, Kitchen Tune Up, Bathroom Tune Up, The Tailored Closet, Premier Garage, Two Maids, Aussie Pet Mobile, Light Speed Restoration, and Clean. J.T. has a ton of take-home value to share today, and we're going to get to it in just a minute. In fact, I even learned something about him during the interview that surprised me, and I've known him for more than 10 years. More about all that in just a few. But first, thanks to Stefan Figley, president of Five Star Franchising's 1-800-PACKOUTS for helping us close out season 14 with his pre-Christmas holiday visit to share his personal as well as brand story. Also, a reminder to please visit us at www.franchisetodaypodcast.com to leave a review, make guest suggestions, check out the entire library of content 14 years strong, or to just say hello. I love hearing from you and it will be much appreciated. Well, season 15 is already shaping up to be a blockbuster, quite possibly the best one Ever Already lined up following Jonathan's visit today, we've got Entrepreneur Magazine's Editor-in-Chief Jason Pfeiffer joining us next week to share a sneak peek of the upcoming 45th Annual 2024 Franchise 500. It'll be on newsstands on January 16th. And then we'll be hearing from franchise financing icon Ron Feldman, who, among other things, is working on some new and creative strategies for select franchisors that could completely eclipse their need to pursue Sue private equity. And also already scheduled is Q1's rising star franchising, Aaliyah Alston, founder and franchisor at Icebox Cryotherapy Studios. Following that, Heather Anderson, VP of Marketing at Ularity, will be dropping by to share her insights into the evolution of the post-COVID consumer and how the rapid pace of technological disruption is revolutionizing local level marketing. Self-Esteem's brand co-founder, Dave Mortensen, pays us a visit in Q1 to update us on the growth of their global empire. zorforum franchisee and IFA legend John Francis takes center stage during Q1 as does Muya Burgers CEO Doug Wilmarth. So as you can see, we are hitting the gas hard for 2024 and it all gets underway in two minutes or less. With Home Franchise Concepts, Jonathan Thiessen, don't go away. Franchise
0: Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors.
1: Franchisors of restaurants, bars, and grills, and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. If you're looking to engage guests, elevate profits, and enhance your customer experience, Atmosphere TV is the answer. What's Atmosphere, you ask? Atmosphere is the world's number one streaming TV service for businesses, here to help you make more and save big on overpriced cable packages. Atmosphere provides you with a free programming option, bringing more than 60 ultra-engaging audio optional channels designed to please customers and increase their average ticket. So how does it work? Well it's easy. Upon sign-on, Atmosphere sends you a free device, loaded with over 60 channels of eye-grabbing entertainment. From news and sports to viral videos and fuzzy animals, every channel is family-friendly and designed to keep your customers happy and engaged. Plus, thanks to Atmosphere's 100% audio-optional format, the programming is perfect for any setting, no matter how loud or busy. So, stop playing and paying overpriced cable. Go with free TV instead, Just go to Atmosphere.tv forward slash sign up and use the code franchise and Atmosphere will waive the usual one-time $99 activation fee for your free to stream device. Visit Atmosphere online at Atmosphere.tv and remember, use the code franchise to waive your one-time activation fee. Visit Atmosphere.tv to elevate your franchise's entertainment experience today. A 30-year veteran of the franchise world, Jonathan Thiessen joined Budget Blinds in 2003 when it was flying just one flag. Over the next 20 years, he contributed significantly to not just the growth of Budget Blinds, but to the growth and development of what is now known as Home Franchise Concepts. As Chief Development Officer of the 10-Brand Enterprise, JT is responsible for the strategic planning, direction, and franchise growth across all 10 brands. Jonathan Teeson. Welcome to Franchise Today. Thanks. It's so great to be here. I appreciate it. It was so good seeing you for the about the 20 minutes that I got to spend at FLDC this year before my right knee gave way. But you're one of those people I love seeing at conferences and look to seeing you at events. And I missed a ton of people this year, JT, but you and I do get to spend a few minutes together, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah, I hope the knee's doing better. It's always good to see you, Stan. Well, we will spend another day talking about wounded knees, but... <laughs> Let's spend today talking about you. And for as long as I've known you, I've known you and associated you with Budget Blinds and Home Franchise Concepts, But what I recently found out and what the audience doesn't know is what came before that. So tell us what you were doing and when, when you intersected with franchising and it found you.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd be happy to. It was a long time ago. It was 1988 to be correct, or I'm sorry, 92 to be correct. And I was in college my last year, my senior year, I was taking a business class and they did a little snippet on franchising. You know, today they have entire franchising curriculums in school, which I've actually had the pleasure of teaching at a few of them. But back then it was just a little couple week blurb. And one of the things that they had us do was to order what at the time, and you'll remember this, was was in a UFOC from any franchise we wanted, and we had to write a paper on it. And uh, I sent away for the TGIF Fridays UFOC. And I was amazed that this company would send this kid with about 30 bucks in his bank account and two part-time jobs this uh this full document that basically unveiled the secrets of uh, owning a a Friday's franchise. And, And I really got into it. And apparently, as a result of my paper, my teacher pulled me aside and said, you know, you ought to think about getting into this business. And I actually know somebody that is recruiting for a franchise developer. And I didn't even know that was a thing, to be honest. I was always planning on going to law school. But I was tired of being poor and eating ramen noodles uh, every other day. So I said, you know what, I'll go get a job and law school will always be there. Um, So I started working for a little company called Remax, which at the time was just starting to become a name in the real estate franchising sector and started developing real estate franchises throughout the Midwest, working for an area development there. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've been doing franchise development ever since that day and I've never looked back.
1: So where was college and where were you doing Remax thing. Where were you from?
2: Uh, I went to school at Miami, Ohio, and right out of there, worked out of Columbus, Ohio, and and Cincinnati, and Nashville, doing franchising in uh, in some of those states and a few others like Georgia and the
1: Carolinas. And so, how long were you with Remax, and what exactly was your day-to-day? What did it look like then?
2: Yeah, so I was with Remax for a few years, and and basically, we would pick cities that we wanted Remax to be in, and I'd go in and and talk to either non-affiliated, unfranchised real estate. Companies Companies, or I would go and pick off some of the top real estate agents in some of the firms there and get them to start their own Remax franchise. It was a very different way of doing business at the time where it was more agent driven than broker driven. And, and as a result, we were able to really grow those units and had a great time with that. I was approached while at Remax by a company that was very similar to Remax. As a matter of fact, the model that Remax was modeled after called Realty Executives and, and went to work for another regional developer there and became the president of that company uh, out of Columbus, Ohio for uh, about four more years. Uh, after that. And then to keeping in the real estate theme, I was recruited from there to Prudential Real Estate when Prudential used to be on the real estate franchising side and enjoyed a long career with them, basically traveling all over the country and again, converting non-franchise real estate companies into Prudential franchise units at that time.
1: So what years were the REMAX years and the Realty Executive years leading up to Prudential?
2: Uh, so REMAX would have been, let me see, 92 through 94 and then Realty Executives have been 94 through 97 and then Prudential 97 through 2003.
1: So the audience doesn't know this, but you and I didn't know this until a week ago either, but we have some very similar background in history. I was selling against Remax when I was selling ERA franchises and scaring big brokers here in the Atlanta and southeastern U.S., scaring them to death about what was coming and how they were about to lose the top 20% of the agents available in a marketplace to this thing called Remax because they're not going to, have to split their commissions anymore. So Mr. Big Mighty Broker, what are you going to do now? Because you used to think you were the king of the market. Now you're not. And I used to, (laughs) self-fear. That's what I saw. And Uh I tried to convert them to ERA and to later to the Prudential. So you came to Prudential in 97, I guess. And I was just getting wrapped up with real estate franchising and moving into food with Blimpy at that time. But my years were 88 to 97 in real estate franchising. And we never knew that about each other in all the years we've known one another, did we?
2: We probably stumbled on each other at some conferences somewhere
1: and didn't even know it, I'm sure. Quite likely. So move us forward in some of the milestones that came through your career in real estate franchising. What are some of the takeaways that you carried as the disciplines that you were able to learn in conversion franchising that would take you forward into what came next? And how did you and home franchise concepts wind up together?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, conversion franchising is something that uh, is much different in a lot of ways than what I do today, which is generally putting people and setting them up in a brand new business, but it was all I knew. And so I, I became accustomed to that because what you do is is you sold two things and you hit on one of them already and you, you sold value in terms of, hey, here's what we can bring to the company that you have that's non-affiliated that you can't get on your own. And whether it's discounts on products or whether it's a lot of times it was corporate transfers that they wanted to sell homes to, things that we could add that would more than cover the additional costs in terms of fees that you'd have to pay to be a broker with us, as well as that you'll attract top quality people because they want to be with some of the top brands. Uh, but then again, we'd also sell fear and say, listen, if you don't do this, the guy across the street might, and he's going to take all your best people. So the best offense is often a good defense. So that's sort of way uh, I, I learned a lot from that. And, and coming out of that, I guess the one thing you always have to be able to do is sell value. You know, what is the value proposition that as a franchisor we bring to the franchisees that make the cost of being associated with the franchise or almost an afterthought? because they know they couldn't do it themselves. And I transitioned from Prudential. You know, it's interesting, and you know this, the the real estate franchising world is a very tight niche, almost within a niche of franchising. And people tend to just bop around within that space and don't usually get out of it. And the fact that you and I did is kind of, I think probably unusual in a lot of cases. But I was on the road five days a week and starting a small family and wanted to be home and be involved and coach and do all the things that young dads want to do. And I was approached by a recruiter at that time to say, hey, there's this company that's looking to grow here in Orange County, California, which is where I was living at the time working for Prudential here. And they're interested in adding some professional franchise development support. Would you be interested in talking to them? And it's this company called Budget Blinds. I remember I had to laugh thinking, is that really even a thing? Do people sell by window covering franchises? I didn't even know that there was even that business. I'm in the real estate world. We fly first class and we are limousines and and now I'm going to sell blinds. And then even trying to explain to my wife what that would look like, it felt a little awkward, but I decided that the benefits certainly in being able to stay home more and, and being local outweighed my potential drawbacks. And so I went and chatted with the five guys that owned the company and immediately understood that this is where I wanted to be. They were fun. They were family. They were entrepreneurial and we were moving fast and I was getting in at the right time to help a company that had grown to about 80 franchise units over the previous 10 years at a time when I thought we could really put some emphasis behind it and and explode it. So I made the move to what was Budget Blinds at the time back in, in 93 and I've been here for the last 20
1: years as a result of that. So coming out of conversion franchising and into the world of food, the biggest change for me was, like you said earlier, we would drop into a market and our targets were easily identified. We could just pick up a listing magazine and look at who has the most listings, who are the biggest brokers in the marketplace and identify our targets. In my world and in yours at Budget Blinds, completely different arena. paradigm shift completely 180 degrees. How do you manage through that? What were you able to take from what you already knew and utilize as a formation of change in the way your life was going to be lived and worked? Yeah, that's a great question.
2: Yeah, it was easy to find those targets by, by dropping into a market, like you said, in the real estate business. and We also weren't asking those people to change the business they were in, right? They were still just going to be selling houses just with a potential different name over the door and, and yard sign in the yard. And When I got into budget blinds, and this was pre internet and all that good stuff. So the way that we generated leads was things like full-page ads in Entrepreneur Magazine, where you could tear out the card and they'd send it in and we'd wait hungrily at the front desk for the cards to come in, sort of Glengarry Glen Glenn Ross style, and then hopefully try to decipher someone's handwriting to give them a call and talk to them about why they should quit their job and become a budget blinds franchise. It was completely different. You still have to sell value, but you're talking to someone that's looking to make an even greater change in their life. And so what I learned was, is that just like in the real estate business, when you're doing conversions, is that you have to figure out where the pain points are for people, right? What is it that they're truly trying to change? You know, you say to people, I always wanted to be in my own business. Well, why? And and you have to learn to ask a lot of questions to really get to what their why is for them so that you can find out if your model will potentially be the the band-aid for that or the, the stitching for that wound that they have to move forward. And so when the real estate business, it might be that they have trouble recruiting because no one wants to work for Bob's House of Real Estate when you've got Prudential and it Banker and such 21 across the street. With budget blinds, it was things like, you wanna be in control of your own future. You don't have control of your own schedule. You wanna have the ability to affect your economics long-term. Like what is it that you're trying to get to? And let's see if we can solve it with this. So a lot of the same tactics that came out of that, to be honest, but a lot different when you're asking people to jump into a business that no one sits around in high school and doodles window coverings on the back of their book and dreams about the day
1: that they can sell (laughs) blinds. I totally understand that. Tell me if you agree with this. When I got into mainstream, as I call it, mainstream franchising after the insular world of conversion franchising and real estate, I found that people that came to us came for one of two reasons. They were either running away from something or they were running towards something. I always found that the people that were running towards something were the more interesting people to have conversations with and ultimately wound up being my buyers more often than not. The other ones were angry for a minute or two about getting passed up for a promotion or something went wrong. In they got mad at their boss and for the moment they were angry enough to do something about it but fewer of those ever pulled the trigger. What do you think about that?
2: I would 100% agree with that. You know, we've had some success with people that I would put in both of those categories over the years. But when I look at the drive that has people that are running towards something versus someone that's looking for something to make up for what in some cases may be their own challenges to begin with, right? And and the reason why their boss is mad is because maybe they don't work very hard or maybe they can't follow direction or some of those things that don't, wouldn't necessarily make them a great franchisee either. So it's not a band-aid for all things. But yes, the people that are driven and truly want to take the risk on themselves are the ones that I find are most successful in our businesses.
1: So in your first years at Budget Blinds, you said this was 2003. So it was the five principal owners, and then later they either brought Tailored Living in, or how did that transaction occur?
2: Yeah, so certainly... If you look back at that, that was the sweet spot for franchises that were home service related because that was the craziness of the buildup in real estate prior to the recession. And we came in and we started. I think we probably averaged about 220 new franchise units a year for from 2003 through 2007. So we were growing like hotcakes. And the guys said, "You know what? We feel like we've really got a model that's down because they've been doing this now for at that point about 15 years." So they said, "You know, we got the model. It's time to take maybe some of the eggs out of the." Window window covering basket and replicate what we're doing here and, and get into the closet business. And so they had met a guy that had founded California Closets and his name escapes me, but he had sold it to private equity and they consulted with them and said, what would you do differently if you did it all over again? And as a result of that, we developed this model around in-home closet storage solutions, and we called it Tailored Living and launched it literally on the eve of the recession, which uh, if you're gonna launch a business that's more of a want to than a need to have product that deals directly with real estate, not the best timing, but we didn't know that, so we did it anyways, and in the long run, it worked out just fine.
1: All right, see how deep I can dig. Was that guy's name Neil Balter? Yes, yeah, very good, I'm impressed. (laughs) I kind of remember that name from way back when, but I don't know why or how that came back to me, but I haven't killed every brain cell yet, JT, but I'm (laughs) almost there. So when you brought Tailored Living in, did the structure of Budget Blinds change?
2: If you want, I'll just take you through sort of how it all went from there. So Tailored Living came in, we worked through the recession with our Budget Blinds and and Tailored Living franchisees. During that time, we found a little company called Premier Garage, which is the largest garage-only franchise that was also owned by private equity, and they wanted to sell that. And so we acquired it and basically took a couple of years to figure out how to mishmash it all together with the closet business. And we did so under the brand Tail Living, featuring Premier Garage back in, let me see, that would have been 2000. 12 or so, I think we did that. And so we, we put that all together and became really the first company that focused on both indoor and outdoor storage solutions. From there, we bought a company called concrete craft they had five franchisees They were based out of Atlanta and they do basically decorative concrete solutions, both indoor and outdoor. It's a lot more extensive than that explanation, but they were concrete geniuses, John and Dan, the two guys that owned that business. And I still laugh about the day that I was trying to work on the website and I, I called them and asked them for some pictures for the website and I'm thinking of course like before and after like beautiful projects they've done and, and they send me a picture of this pile of rock somewhere in Mississippi and they're like isn't that cool that's where the <laughs> product of the whatever that we make and the concrete and I'm like only you two think it's cool but I need people that think that that's cool to be at the baseline of this business <laughs> and so they're the rocket scientists of concrete but like anybody starting a small brand they had trouble wearing all the hats so we were able to leverage everything from financial to legal to marketing to franchise development to really grow that business to where it is today, which is well over 100 franchisees strong and thriving. And right about that time, the five guys were still there. They were starting to make some money and have some fun and, and they earned it. Trust me, they did work really hard and been very bootstrapped for a long time. And But it would become come to payday and, and you'd have to find out which hole they were on in the golf course because no one remembered to come in and sign paychecks back when you used to have to do that. And so they figured it was about time for them to turn the wheel over to someone that maybe it was a little bit more driven or professional in terms of building the business to the next level. And so that's when we interviewed private equity and the company sold to private equity at that time.
1: I'll tell you what, that's a great place for us to park and take a quick break. And we can come back on the other side and talk about that inflection point and the way forward and how much and how quickly things began to grow as you guys hit the gas with private equity behind you. We're talking today with Jonathan Teeson, JT, as those of us that know him call him. And he is the chief development officer at home franchise concepts and we'll be right back to pick up from there don't go away franchise today will be right back but first a word from our sponsors In today's world, franchisors must apply systems that manage and support all aspects of franchise relationships, whether it's supporting prospective franchisees on their discovery journeys or getting units open and properly supported, whether it's managing legal compliance and royalties or managing franchisee location and ownership information. I'm talking about FRM solutions and the power of one, one system, one tool that manages it all for multiple stakeholders across a single brand or across an entire enterprise for multi-branded portfolio companies. Yes, a single instance of FRM is all it takes across departments and across brands. One system providing a single source of truth that will push Pull and integrate with data from other sources. Plus, FRM offers dynamic and comprehensive dashboarding and robust reporting with customizations available across all departments and brands. So, replace inflexible, take-it-or-leave-it platforms with a more personal approach and satisfy the needs of many with the power of one. FRM Solutions, the only one that lets you have it your way. Visit FRMSolutions.com to learn more or to order up a demo today. And the conversation continues with Jonathan Teeson talking about home franchise concepts where he was born into mainstream franchising back in 2003. And now we kind of left at a point where the five guys that were the core of the business were taking their exit and private equity was being interviewed. What did that look like? And how involved were the executive team and members like you involved in making the decision about which private equity companies to interview and which ones to consider?
2: Yeah, it was important for us. To try to find the right company as a partner that would uphold the culture that we've been building. We have a bit of a unique culture, we think, here. And we'd heard all the horror stories, both about companies coming in and tearing everything apart. And we wanted to make sure that people that acquired us wanted to take what we had and just add to it as opposed to dismantling it. And so, interestingly enough, the five guys really weren't all that involved in that. And they let those of us that were going to be there afterwards do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to working with the private equity groups. we met with fifteen private equity groups over an eighteen day period and you know what that looks like, right? It's a long day meeting where you're mm-hmm. going over the thing and then a three-hour steak dinner to get to know each other and stumble to bed and get up and do it all over again. But we did it because it was important for us to really get to know them as much as they got to know us. And we landed on a company called Trilantic Capital Partners and we were their first franchise experience and they were our first PE firm. And so we actually spent a lot of time learning a lot from each other throughout the whole process.
1: And so how long did it take to get to the finish line or the starting line, I guess?
2: It was relatively quick. I think it was probably all in all about 90 days in and out if I remember correctly. It's been a while, but it went pretty smoothly and we announced them as a, as the new partners and the five guys, unlike a lot of these transactions, the five guys really exited completely out of it. And so that was a bit of a, a bit of a culture shock just because everyone was used to those five guys being the ones that they had on speed dial or something went wrong, or they had a question or whatever that might be. And, and now there was a lot of new people in charge, but we worked through it and ended up being a pretty good relationship all in all.
1: So what were the first things that were manifest? What were the first changes that were noticeable on your, retain the culture, but you've got a gas tank now filled with gas, high octane fuel, probably a lot of capital to go do something with. What did that look like? Yeah,
2: you know what? We did some things that I think the guys had held back from for a few years in terms of investing in people, in software, in even facilities in some case where we upgraded a lot of those things because if you're on the edge of selling your company, you want to put X amount of millions into new software, or you want to wait and let the next guys do it? And I think that there's a little bit of that that went on towards the end. So I think they really took stock of what we were doing and really looked to see where they could inject some very short-term capital that would lift the EBITDA and, and lift the franchisees and everything else in a short period of time. And they did that for a couple of years. And then they, they went out and bought another company called AdvantaClean which was basically a scheduled services remediation business based out of North Carolina that we've since moved to Dallas. and. And so they put their capital work in buying that company. But as quick as you want to snap your fingers, we were four years in with those guys. And they said, "Okay, it's time to put it on the block again. And we were off going through the whole process all over again.
1: Wow. And so what did it look like round two?
2: Well, I can promise you it
1: wasn't 15 steak dinners. (laughs)
2: uh, Yeah, we learned our lesson. And the next round was really two traditional private equity companies and this company that no one here had ever heard of called JM Family Enterprises. And we kind of looked over the list and said, not sure why these guys are even in the mix. You know, They're an auto company. They're not in franchising and figured maybe they were just needed to run some miles on their plane or something like that. But I'll tell you what, as we got into the process, we understood that the JM family were completely different than anything else that we had run across to this point. For one, they weren't private equity, they're private family money, which is a big difference maker, at least in my opinion. And the other is that they've been around for 55 years and, and they built an amazing culture that was similar in a lot of ways to ours. And all the validation we did is like these guys do what they say they're going to do. They take care of their people and and they have a long-term approach to things. And all of those things have manifested and even more.
1: With the exception of work capital, I would say the difference between what you're describing is buy and hold or buy and flip right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think work's a good example of, of something that doesn't fit necessarily in that category. But yeah, you know, these guys are, they buy whole companies and build companies and they don't have to sell them. And so it's long-term investment strategies that we take and it's taking care of the people first, knowing that if you do that, then the results that you're looking for will be there. Because and when I say people, I mean, not only associates of this company, but also our franchisees and making sure that they understand that we can't be successful unless they are. And, and really taking that approach to heart of everything that we do, and almost flipping the pyramid in that regard. And I think that has been loudly heard and and taken to heart by our franchisee base. And they're extremely happy with the addition of JM Family into the mix.
1: And tell me again what year that was. It was 2019, yeah. And so since 2019, we've had a pandemic in between. What does the escalation or the growth cycle of the brands look like in this frame of time, 19 to 23?
2: Yeah, don't tell us there was a pandemic. The pandemic was actually really good for the home services business. Everyone was home looking around going, hey, we've always meant to redo the concrete or put in some blinds or a closet or garage or whatever it might be. So we took advantage of that a little bit and just in terms of using the dry powder that jam family had to invest in going out and acquiring some more companies. So pretty shortly after they came on board, we acquired Kitchen Tune-Up and Bath Tune-Up, which is a great brand that is actually the oldest brands of anything in our inventory based out of South Dakota and brought them on. And again, they feel like they're just a great cultural match for us. And it's been a, a great ride since 2020 in acquiring them. In 2021, we acquired a company called Two Maids and a Mop out of Birmingham, Alabama, and since have rebranded it to just be called Two Maids. But again, and taking a founder built brand and Ron did a great job building it. And we were able to inject a lot of our shared services and capital into it. And it's grown really exponentially just in the last two years. Then we acquired Aussie Petmobile, which again is another legacy brand, founder brand out of Australia, does mobile pet grooming and not a lot of change with that model in a long period of time. And so we were able to go in and really listen to the franchisees and adjust the model and come up with a different strategy because the need for pet services is absolutely booming and and we want to be at the forefront of that. And just in a very short period of time, since we've made some of those changes, the business has absolutely exploded. And then the last thing we did is we actually launched from scratch uh, a full-service 24-7 remediation company called Lightspeed Restoration that went live this July and is already growing by leaps and bounds as we're taking some of our experience with Clean and restoration and just expanding it to people that want to be more 24-7, full-service, insurance-driven, as opposed to scheduled services. Well, you guys were some
1: of the earliest of adapters in the home services space. A lot of it has been pushed at a higher acceleration rate since COVID, but you were well into it well before COVID. So looking back and then taking a look forward, how many of the people that were part of the original team when you began at Budget Blinds and the five guys exited, how many other executives are still there today?
2: Oh, that's a good question. At least four of us and a couple that came right after me as well. So we're starting to celebrate a lot lot of 21, 20, 2019 anniversaries around here with people that have stayed on and, and the company has grown. Obviously, we've got well over 300 associates that work here now as opposed to the handful of us that were there at the beginning. But yeah, people come here and they don't typically leave, which is a lot of fun.
1: And what do you see now, JT, as you look at the tea leaves and if you were looking into the crystal ball with all that you've experienced and all that you've seen through recession and then pandemic, what are you looking at in the next one to three or even five years, what are the major changes that are occurring that you're reflecting upon and looking to adjust your business models to be in front of them instead of on the reactive side? What are you seeing?
2: That's a great question. And there's a lot of things that we learn coming out of the pandemic. Uh, I think that that maybe have been covered up for years because we didn't have to adjust the way we did things. I think there's a few things that I'm looking at. Number one, the labor challenge that's out there, or opportunity, as some people like to call it, is one that we've never really had to experience before and and never really had to think about assisting franchisees in the best we can without overstepping the line and acquiring and attracting and retaining great people. Because no matter what your model is, if you can't get great people working with you and for you, you're not going to give the customers the experience they want and grow the brand they will. And so we've come up with what I think is a pretty cool program that actually allows our franchisees to offer discounts to people that they're both recruiting and retaining on future home franchise concepts, franchises, as just an incentive to potentially bring them on and have them stay longer because each year they stay, that percentage goes up. And I don't know how many associates will end up becoming franchisees down the road, although we've had many, many over the years that started as an associate of one of our franchise owners. But we want people to feel like, listen, we do care about your future and this is more than just a job. And we're actually enrolling them in quarterly classes so they can learn more about being an entrepreneur and being a franchisee, things like basic things like reading P&Ls and that sort of thing. So we're trying to do some pretty creative things to help attract quality people to the organization to help our franchisees meet the demand because the demand out there for our products and services is still at an all-time high.
1: Very smart, very smart thing. You brought a memory back to me that I learned from one of the founders of Two Men in a Truck, Brig Sorber, told me once upon a time right here on Franchise Today that he knew who his next franchisees were going to be because they've been brought up in the culture. They've been brought up as drivers, as shift managers, as different roles with leadership development that gave them an opportunity to own. And they had a program where the longer you stayed, the more of the upfront numbers that it took to make that a possibility went into an account. and. And you were being trained to become an owner and who better than somebody who's done it all from the bottom up to then take the keys to the truck and call it his own.
2: Sure, 100%. Don't you think that if you have a vision of being that person someday that maybe you spend a little extra time asking more questions about why you do what you do and take, you know what I mean? I think it creates for a better experience all around for everybody and makes for better associates and better franchisees if they decide to make that turn down the road. So we're excited about that program and uh, we'll continue to put some more emphasis
1: behind it here. Well, we're at the place where I have to ask you, what have I not asked you that you wished I did? (laughs) Oh, that's a tough question. You know, I, I get asked a lot. I, I do a lot of mentoring, which I love, by
2: the way, of emerging franchisees. And and it, although it's hard for me sometimes to remember back when we were that way, I, I love giving advice and, and working with people as they grow. And, and I'm working with one franchisor right now who's just getting ready to sign her first franchisees. And the advice I keep giving her, because, you know, you're excited. You want to put a pin in the map or two, and you want to get some capital coming in, and you want to get your franchise out there. And yet, with a couple of the candidates, she's got a little hesitation. And what I told her is, listen, franchisee number one through five looks a lot different than franchisee number 101 through 105. They have to do a lot of heavy lifting for you. And you guys have to be locked at the hip in terms of what the expectations are. They'd want to run through the wall for your brand. And if you have any question marks whatsoever about that early first 10 franchisees, we'll call them, then the answer is no. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And so she keeps passing people. And I'm like, well, eventually you have to say yes to somebody. But I think it's really Mm -hmm. important But not everyone, it doesn't make them a bad franchisee potentially, but not everyone's suited to be on the bleeding edge of something. Some are much more suited to come into something that's been around for 10 years and has got 300 franchisees and the systems are all down and it's a matter of plug and play. And so I guess the only thing I would suggest to those that are out there that are really young and acquiring their first franchisees is really resist to just hope that they're going to work out for you, even if you're not 100% sure that it's the right fit, because hope's not a strategy. And These are people that that are going to help you grow, or they're going to kill you with phone calls at all hour of the day about everything that's not working, even though you told them that it was still a work in progress. So be really careful about that and know that that person may be a better franchisee number 101 than number one.
1: Smart and sage advice, JT. How about some contact info for those who are going to want to take you up on that mentoring thing that you just put out there?
2: Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. You can always reach me at Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N.T-S-E-N, T.H.I.E.S.S.E.N. at gohfc.com or my phone number is 949-306-4789. Shoot me a
1: text. Can't thank you enough, JT, for carving it out and making time to share so much and to really bring some real wisdom to the audience who are in large part executives or emerging franchisors. So much appreciated, my friend. Thanks for being here.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It was so much fun.
1: Jonathan Teeson, Chief Development Officer at Home Franchise Concepts. Well, that does it for today. Next week, Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Media, joins us to talk about the upcoming 45th edition of the Entrepreneur Franchise 500. And remember, too, to pay us a visit at www.franchisetodaypodcast.com and leave a review or make guest suggestions. Until next week, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise
0: Today is a production of FRM